I think I was 12 the day I forgot how to play the piano. I was no prodigy, just one of many children who, at age five, found themselves plunked onto a hard bench in front of an impossible number of keys and told to make a life choice. But what I lacked in talent or commitment, I made up for with gusto. Whenever I was given a piece of music that aired on the forte side, I went for it. And by the time I was a preteen, I was solidly okay. I had numerous recitals under my belt and had even banged the hell out of a piece called The Great Smoky Mountains in a mall food court, inspiring the assembled Manchu Wok and Chick-fil-A patrons to briefly pause their mastications and offer light, sticky applause. When I sat down that night in the modest recital hall at the community college where I took my lessons, I had no reason to worry. I was scheduled to go fifth and play a piece I knew backwards and forwards. But by the time the second student was wrapping up for release, I suddenly realized that I couldn't remember what to do after the first two bars. The notes had vanished. I began sweating and tried to tell myself that the tune would come back to me once I started playing. But as my turn got closer and closer, I felt something I had never felt when confronted with a piano before. Fear. I was certainly worried about the embarrassment of messing up something so easy in front of a room full of people who didn't have cell phones yet. But I was mostly disturbed that something I knew so well could just disappear from my mind. My turn came. I walked to the stage, bowed, sat down, and began. As I reached the end of the second bar, my faint hope that it would all come flooding back to me drained. The music was gone. I didn't stop playing, mind you. I kept banging away and tried to work through it, thinking that if I hit enough notes, I could jog my memory. What followed was an unscheduled and unsanctioned atonal anxiety performance piece. My mother would later say that if I hadn't grimaced so much, no one would have ever known that what I was playing wasn't right. I remember thinking, possibly hoping, that I might be dying. That forgetting this stupid piece of music was just the opening flourish of a tumor that would make my brain shut down entirely. And then I thought, that's fine. That's better. It was one of the few and certainly first times in my life that what I thought of as the silence and absence of death would be preferable to my current misery. I stopped fearing death momentarily and feared only the piano and my own stupid brain. Finally, after three minutes, or three hours, depending on how you experience time, I happened upon one of the missing chords and everything snapped back into place. I played the rest of the piece through, forcefully and flawlessly. But by the time I took my closing, sweaty bow, I had quit piano for good. Any instrument that I would rather die than play, I reasoned, was perhaps not for me. This is Stupid Human Suits. Welcome to Stupid, Stupid Human Suits! Yay. Yay! Our guest this week is Margie Kerr, a sociologist and author of Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. That's right. She's a sociologist who studies fear. In addition to writing and teaching, she operated a lab out of Scare House, a popular haunted house in Pittsburgh, where she used her expertise to design attractions. And right now she runs a research lab out of the University of Pittsburgh that looks at fear in the real world. Uh, for her book, she traveled around the world visiting haunted houses, spent time with ghost hunters, did the edge walk off of CN Tower in Toronto, which is basically just hanging off the side of a skyscraper from a wire. And she went to the suicide forest in Japan. I Guys. am going to ask all about that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Margie. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, I want to jump right into it. One yeah. of the th ways we like to start these is uh, we like to ask all of our guests if they remember, um, and I assume this would be in childhood, but maybe you only found out about it as an adult. Um, do you yeah. remember when you found out about death and that it was a thing that would happen to you and to everyone? Yeah. When was your first time with that experience? 
I think, I, I don't know if this is the first time that I realized it, but the most impactful time was when um, my cousins had me uh, unearth some sheep bones behind the farmhouse where my, my mom and her family grew up. Oh. And that that was definitely the point where I was like, okay, this is, you know, a very uh, real thing. And I'm holding, you know, something in my hand that used to be alive. How old were you then? I don't know. It's one of those memories where you can kind of, you can see, <laughs> yeah, you can see it. And, you know, in my head, I probably was like maybe, I don't know, three feet tall. I'm thinking probably around four <laughs> or five. I'm really bad with, um, kind of remembering how old I was, but it, it was definitely one of my earliest memories. And, um, stuck with me, and I remember crying in my mom's lap for a very long oh, time. Yeah, uh, Sean and I have—we've uh, obviously talked about the earliest memory we have of it. But um, I actually remembered this thing the other day. Um, you know, part of processing what death was. Um, I, I had this. My favorite stuffed animal was a little pink panther that I got when I was five, and I—I I don't. Again, I don't know how old I was either, but let's say maybe six or seven, I went through this phase where I just killed him all the time. And I I have a distinct memory of poising him at the top of my chest of drawers. And then I pretended that he said, I can't take it anymore. And he, I tipped him off. He landed on the carpet and then I buried him in a shoebox and left him in my closet for six months. And that I, I grieved him. And then, of course, he came back to life one day. But, right. but that, that was part of my Oh, my you little creep. I know. You little creep. Oh, that's adorable. I uh, I think maybe one of the another time I realized death was a thing was uh, watching uh, the Albert Finney musical Scrooge with my mom. And uh, there's a like the uh, what's his name uh, the uh, Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness, yeah, Alex Alec Guinness. Uh, when he was uh, playing Marley, that didn't do it for me. But there's a scene where the uh, uh, he's flying. I think it's with the Ghost of Christmas Present. I don't. I forget who, but like there are all these terrifying, gangly spirits in the sky. Oh, that is and, scary. Yeah, the idea that these spirits are just—they're floating up there in the sky, uh, being tortured to fly around the earth forever. But only on Christmas Eve are they even remotely visible. And like Christmas Eve became really kind of scary for a while. I was like, <laughs> oh, the dead are here! Yay! <laughs> That's your Phoebe Gates and Gremlins story. <laughs> yeah, 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 basically. <laughs> Um, so, Margie, what? Uh, le- like, let's just hit this basic. What on earth makes a person want to study fear? What was it for you? Uh, I think I, I really wanted to understand why people like to engage with scary, morbid, kind of dark things. Um, as m- m- with a background in sociology, I had focused academically on fear as a very negative thing and how it's, you know, behind discrimination and oppression and mm-hmm. um, racism and, and you know, the fear of, of other people. But um, for me, I knew I liked doing scary things and reading scary stories and haunted houses and scary movies. And so I just wanted to try and figure out why why we like to do that kind of stuff. And, and honestly, if it is, you know, problematic because that's one of the things I hear the most from parents is, you know, my kid likes all this dark stuff. Does that mean that they're somehow, you know, wrong or, Mm -hmm. or something's wrong? And I wanted to, to look into that. And I'm happy to say it doesn't mean that there's anything (laughs) wrong. Um, So, uh, so yeah, that's really what motivated uh, me to kind of look at fear from a different angle. Did you have a, did you have a, a a recurring fear, some, a deep seated fear that, uh, you know, maybe helped drive that a little bit? No, not really. I I really wanted to try and figure out like why why we we do enjoy kind of dark things mm. um, and uh, and just just explore that because I I never really had too many overwhelming fears. I mean, you know, not not 
the kind of fears people talk about in a fun way. Like I haven't ever really been afraid of spiders or, you know, um, (laughs) things like that. But, um, but yeah, so I just wanted to try and figure out why we like to to do scary things. It is an interesting thing because you do hear like people anecdotally say, "Well, you know, they were a real weird child," and you know, you <laughs> see that's that's why they grow up to be a murderer or, or whatever they did. And yeah, uh, yeah. but I like I remember I was terrified of death as a kid once I found out what it was, um, but I was also drawn to it and I, I haven't killed anybody yet so um but right. like i remember seeing the Super. water uh, seeing the movie watership down when i was like oh, seven gosh. and have you, so you've seen it <laughs> yeah. um, oh yeah and it, that, that's a heavy hitter and it yeah. immediately it terrified me but it immediately became my favorite movie at the same time and then i read the book and it was my favorite book mm-hmm. um but i was talking to sean about this you know there's so much it's an and if you haven't seen it it's um an animated uh, cartoon about rabbits and you think it's going to be adorable and then the blood and viscera start flowing and it's just terrifying But and it's all about mortality but the thing that scared me the most about it was uh, the very end of the movie um, after you know the rabbits have succeeded and they've, they've had this long life and they have this stable community the main protagonist Hazel he's an old rabbit and he's lived his life and oh. death uh, which is the black rabbit of Inlay comes to him to take him away and he lies down peacefully takes his last breath and dies and I cried and cried and cried because that was, right the, that was the worst part that. of it for me yeah. um, and there were a lot of movies it feels like during my childhood that dealt with death like Charlotte's web and even never yeah. story and oh yeah all these really kind of you know i don't know i'm not really up to date with what kids are watching <laughs> cars today, but i wonder if they're dealing with death that directly because i think it's, it's healthy to yeah um, especially as kids to explore what it means and that's the only way that we can grow up to not be afraid of death is to really understand that it's a natural process that's going to happen um well is that everybody. fear of death is that at the root uh, is that ultimately, do you think at the, at the root of all the, our other, you know, so-called irrational fears or fear of the dark? Like, is Yeah. It- a lot of times it is. There's some other physiological kind of components that go into why we're afraid of things like the dark or, or heights or, um, you know, needles, things that can physically hurt us in a very real way. Um, that's also part of it. But you know, we've got that drive to survive. And so at the end of the day, you know, all of those things are going to come back to, are we going to end up dead if we don't take some action to, mm. you know, stay away from mm. whatever this, this threat is? So. What do you think? What's the, because a lot of what uh, I, I, at least seems to be covered in your book um, is these kind of thrill seeking moments. Um, the, the like hanging off the building, roller coasters, which I love roller coasters. Um, mm. What's the relationship between wanting to put yourself in these fearful situations or see scary movies and then actual fear of actual things like death and danger and dismemberment and stuff? Yeah, I, I think that um, some of it is the natural high, the the endorphins and the dopamine and all the chemicals that are released when we're in that heightened state. Um, because physiologically, that heightened state, that high arousal state looks very similar to when we're laughing or excited or surprised or really happy, um, the difference is in the you know the the context. And so, if we know that we're in a safe place and all of those things are happening in our body, then we can um, enjoy them. Um, but I think that on on a deeper level, these opportunities they feel like a chance to kind of practice being scared and get better at it. So, hmm. um, you know, oh. what my colleague and I are really looking at is how to how to use these voluntary moments of being scared to practice 
um, when when it comes time <laughs> to be, you know, really threatened. So kind of it was a way to build up distress tolerance. Oh, um, distress tolerance. <laughs> that's yeah. the name of my new band. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. That's funny because I feel like as I get older, I'm getting worse at being afraid. Like I used yeah. to love going to horror movies yeah, and now too. I get too stressed out during them I like actually Sean loves watching horror movies and I I love watching them after I've already seen them and I know what's going to happen so if I ever have to watch a movie with him uh, that I haven't seen I pull I'm the worst I pull Wikipedia up on my phone and I read ahead to right. know what I have to worry it's about it's really sad <laughs> but I like, get too on, stressed otherwise <laughs> Yeah, there is a, a relationship between age and kind of comfort with uncertainty, and, and we tend to be less comfortable with it as we get older. Um, I'm not I'm not as familiar with the research looking at, at necessarily why that is, but I, I think some of it has to do with our own kind of concerns or, or how our body is changing. Mm. But um, I always like I feel that in myself too. Like, wow, I really don't know if I'm up for you know driving full speed ahead down a, a really steep road anymore. But um, <laughs> I try and remember like, no, I need to be open to to these moments because I don't know, hopefully it'll be good for me. <laughs> but but it, it is, um, it, it, it does happen. Do you, do you have a, like, a, you don't have a specific thing that, uh, you know, a, a, a fear that you're sort of at this point in your life trying to conquer still or, or are you pretty even keeled because you've spent so much time thinking and talking about this stuff? I think I'm I'm better at recognizing the fears that I can probably like confront and overcome. For example, I'm uh, as it's snowing right now. I am afraid of skiing because it just you know standing at the top of a hill and then just going down mm-hmm. on two, you know, thin uh, <laughs> skis just is really frightening. But I know that like if I really wanted to, I could probably go and and go skiing and overcome it. Um, but other things like you know fear of climate change, things like that, I've kind of found a nice acceptance that I'm going to be afraid of that, but there's nothing I can do about it. So right. I think that I've I've definitely come to a, a nice relationship with sorting out what fears I can realistically conquer and which ones I'm just going to have to be okay not knowing. That makes total sense. Um, can I ask you, uh, one of the things we mentioned in the intro was the uh, the the wire walk, the hanging off of the CN oh, tower. God. I don't even yeah. want to Just, think about can you, this. I want to think about it. I want, I want to, like, <laughs> what was that like? Why did you do that? Uh, would you do it again? Like, just tell me everything. It was, it, I would definitely do it again. And it was um, surprising. Like, that's what I was so shocked by how surprised I, surprised I was by my own reaction to it because I, I haven't really been afraid of heights and um, I thought, oh, this will be no big deal. You know, you're you're attached by a harness. There's no way that you're going to to fall. Um, and I thought this will be no no problem. But as soon as you walk up there, it's it really is true. This this other part of you takes over and just says, you don't have wings. You can't fly. You're gonna die. This is just a bad idea. And and it's just I it was like being witness to this argument between my rational brain and just every kind of survival instinct in mm. me um, that that was saying, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you need to go back inside. And I, I was shaking and um, just it was it was incredible. And the great thing about the CN Tower is that you're up there for a pretty long time. We were up there for around 35 minutes. Jesus. So you have time to to have that conversation between these two parts of your It's like the five stages of grief but for fear. You yeah, went through all yeah. of them. And it's just it's funny cuz when I think back to it now and I remember looking down between your feet and you see just these tiny I mean people really did look like little specks of of pepper. 
I can still I still get that kind of stomach drop because it was such an intense, um, just just instinctual response to to being up that high. Oh. Um, but it, it was I when I finished, I thought I just felt like I could do anything. I just was ready to go and conquer the world. I mean, oh, it was wow. really such a crazy self esteem boost. <laughs> yeah, because uh, heights. I, I wanted to ask about that because heights is one of the th- the things I really do have a physical fear response to. Both it's it's do. different than Yours you know, worse. all being internal. Like I. Mine is so bad. When we, if we go to the IMAX uh, here in New York, there's a big long escalator that goes up like three floors. Yes, and uh, I, you know, so I was standing on the right side of it, which is where the drop off is. And as soon as we got to a certain point, I sat down on the 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 stairs of it because I couldn't take seeing over the side, and I. So yeah, that like that is when my fear turns into an actual physical response is that it, I have to deal with. You, you would Carol be like a, a prime candidate for something like the the wire walk thing, or is she is she like the uh, why don't you just stay home? No, candidate. I think so. I think that anybody who is willing to to challenge themselves to to do it should do it. The the most critical part is is choice. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I hate seeing parents who will drag their kids to something that yeah. they really don't want to do because then it's not going to be a good time. But if the kid is saying, "Yeah, you know, I want to push myself and challenge myself," then um, then I say, "Go for it." And it's interesting with heights because some people, you know, it's just the it's it is the the visceral reaction to being up so high or not being able to maybe find your balance because you know you're so far from any kind of anchor point. But for some people too, it's a fear of um, either jumping or, yes. or yeah. like yeah. losing something. So for me, I was Ugh. always afraid that I would lose my glasses or my earrings or something would fall into this, you know, uh, ravine or off of a bridge, and or this fear that I would jump. And I so I looked into, and it's not that I'm suicidal or anything. It's a it's a real phenomena that. Um, it's kind of a, a way that our brain is trying to rectify the cognitive dissonance that we, we start thinking like, we're going to fall. We can't fall. Don't jump. And so you're thinking that, but then you're standing there. And so part of our brain says, well, maybe we should just jump because, you know, we're trying to, to stop this. Yeah. This I'm actually g- having a physical reaction to you talking about this right now because it's just, I have the same thing with uh, in the office, you know, those paper cutters. If I see somebody has left the arm of it up, I am absolutely oh, yeah. certain I'm going to put my hand in there and slam it down. Yeah. Uh, and I have yeah. to I have to carefully go up and close it to make sure I don't I have that do feeling that. on the subway platform. I'm always convinced that somebody is going to push me or maybe I should just jump and see what it's like. Right. You right. Know? Or carrying the tray uh, across the cafeteria and yeah. just want to Yeah, it's this fascinating thing with our our brain like we're we're thinking about the thing that we don't want to do. And so there is it's an all like fear is all about the anticipation mm. and as soon as the anticipation is over, then we know that we'll be kind of more relaxed. Yeah. So even if that means some kind of catastrophic thing happening, at least it'll be known. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's part of why, like, I, I have the height problem, but I enjoy roller coasters because there's a very quick reward to yeah. being afraid of that initial hill that you go up slowly because then mm-hmm. you're going fast and it's fun and 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 you know you're okay i always sense. think i'm on the car that's just going to go off the rails <laughs> and fly into the sky and hit at 300 miles an hour the ground and it's like 15 are dead in a tragic accident at knott's berry farm <laughs> but yeah. it's never it never happens not to me i love knott's berry too <laughs> I, yeah, I think Part. there actually was a problem there recently i'm, uh, I'm sorry oh, no. No. yeah, yeah I, I am laughing at that i'm sorry the past um 
<laughs> Thank I, you I, we for should apologizing look that up. to yeah, the Yeah, we should look that up. Is that also why the uh, uh, is that also why people love disaster movies? Is there like a a similar sort of like you get over it comfort level associated with that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that it's it's part, you know, just kind of having a resolution of any kind uh, is going to feel better than the anticipation mm. before it. Ah. Um, then there's there's also just yeah. the we're really interested in in imagining catastrophic things because we want, you know, a part of us wants to know what would happen in those cases so that we could prepare for it. So if we, you know, fear that which we don't know, then you know, we want to kind of imagine the worst thing possible so that we can handle it and know we can deal with it so that if it ever does happen, yeah. uh, we've been there before. Um, oh, that's so, a good point. And yeah, we just, we do have a, a natural interest in uh, things that are kind of gross or even, um, you know, uh, graphic. And uh, we've evolved to pay attention to things that are threatening. So fire, mutilation, all of these things we you know, are, have kind of evolved to pay attention to. So, um, it's the, the negativity bias that we have. Negativity so. bias. Is that like, uh, yeah. is that, if that's a term for all of that horror, sto- horror movie, disaster movie stuff that we're all yeah, attracted it's, to? It's, they, they did a bunch of, uh, studies showing people pictures of, you know, um, collages that had flowers hidden inside them or, or, uh, threatening images like guns or knives. And we notice the guns and knives more quickly. Um, or when they're showing people two pictures, here's a flower, here's a, you know, a, a ball of fire. We, fo- we look at the fire, we look at the, the negative things first and they hold our gaze longer. And, uh, it's not because we, you know, want to be just, uh, negative all the time. It's just, that's what we're kind of, hardwired to mm. to look at and pay attention to. And then the challenge though is, and we definitely can modify this, is to start trying to pay attention to more positive things. Um, and uh, there've been some really interesting apps developed that you know, challenge people to do that, to like think about the, the 10 good things that happened today to try and balance out the negativity uh. bias because we definitely have a lot of <laughs> images coming at us all the time today that are, are negative. Yeah. yeah. No, there's a, that's a, that's something I talk about with my therapist is that <laughs> if I just let my mind wander, like, you know, we're on the streets of New York here. If uh, you can sort of, it's very busy, but you can sort of zone out. You, 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 you have the part of your brain that knows how to navigate everything if you've been here for years and you can just sort of zone out. And when I zone out, there's always like some horrible, violent, like worst case scenario image that will pop into my head about like, Oh shit. What if, uh, that guy in front of me got hit by this cab or there's like somebody just pulls out a sword and starts running at people. What would I do? Which is a crazy question because somebody's not going to come up with this. I mean, although it is New York and it is 2017, maybe they would. So maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Maybe that's not crazy. I used to have, uh, when I was younger, um, I haven't thought about this in years. You just reminded me of it. Um, the thing that used to pop in my head was if ever I was having a conversation in fairly close proximity to someone else, my mind would go, what if I kiss them right now? What if oh, I kiss yeah. them? Yeah. I'm going to kiss. Oh, my God. And I would like try to end the conversation. <laughs> yeah. to get out of it. I've yeah. had that. That's, yeah, there's some really there's some uh, in the extreme. Those kinds of things um, are wrapped up in uh, they call them intrusive thoughts. And everybody has them sometimes, just these thoughts that will pop into into your mind. Uh, for some people, they can be so intrusive that they don't feel like they can you know, control them. Um, but it is something that I think is a way for us to sort of try and be prepared to, to 
to you know imagine imagine the worst and and prepare for it <laughs> <laughs> or just the i think you know really creative people too are thinking about just kind of what the what ifs you know what could happen um because that makes for great storytelling yeah. and mm-hmm. and just you know creative thinking in general which is fun you know it's a way of entertaining ourselves yeah i mean if you're at a job interview and you're just sitting there and like I don't know. What if I kissed this lady? Well, <laughs> right. that'd be like, fucked up, is what it would be. Yeah. But I mean, it'd be worse if you did it. Like it if I really, did, it'd be adorable. It would but. be adorable. <laughs> well, that's uh, why I loved sociology, and and what really kind of got me hooked to sociology was reading some of the studies of sociologists who would go and violate social norms just to see what would happen. Like, well, what if I went to this funeral that's of a different faith than me and just stood up and and did this thing? Like. Yeah. Um, you know, we kind of can see what the norms or morals and values of a society are by, you know, crossing that line. Yeah. <laughs> do, I mean, do you spend a lot of time looking at those weird little social contracts that we have as a as a civilization and trying to figure out how fear fits into them, or how does how does what's your what's your take? <laughs> I do. I I love going places and just sitting there and watching and and what amazes me the most is how incredibly civilized we really are um without kind of without, you know, force without um you know, if you just think about like traffic and following light signals and just sort of following the rules of everyday life, um we do that and we could break a whole lot of laws and probably not have a ton of consequences. I'm talking about small ones, like yeah. not stopping and, and things like that. But mm-hmm. we really do kind of um, depend on this this um, jurying of each other. And uh, because we know that in the end, it's better for us all to, to do these things. But w- to think about what would happen if, if we just didn't, I mean, it's it, you can really kind of see how society would unravel really quickly. Mm. Yeah, there's a um, uh, there's a there's a David Brin book. I don't know if you read any science fiction or, uh, but there's a David Brin book. Uh, oh, what am I talking about? It's called The Postman. They made a terrible movie. <laughs> oh, right. yes, yes, I read The Postman in yeah in, in college. Oh, oh yeah, so like The Postman. It's interesting because it's not one. They make a he makes a point about talking about how it's not one thing that uh, sort of disintegrated civilization. It took like six or seven things sort of overlapping one bit at a time and all these like social contracts eventually erode because we're all glued together by you know a multiplicity of things and one by one as they were eroded people became just a little bit more savage a little bit more savage until somebody was able to take power like these uh, weirdo survivalists called wholenists I believe it was right um, right exactly yeah no I just I'm I'm fascinated by that uh, and off of sort of uh, you know the disintegration of civilization um, uh, you were uh, quoted a few times in a Rolling Stone article in October called why we're living in the age of fear and uh, the article drew a corollary between the 24-7 way uh, in which we consume news with greater levels of anxiety and then talked about the, uh, the illogical ways that anxiety is translated both in general opinion and in the voting booth. Uh, what role do you think fear played in the 2016 election? Oh, massive, massive. And it's just, it's really hard as, as an educator to, to see what a huge role it played because it was like a lot of logic and rational thought just went out the window. And, um, and, you know, voters, you know, people do vote with their, with their emotions, with their gut. And just every day, I just wanted people to just, you know, just write down just facts, you know, like what's important to them, what their goals are, and then research and, you know, really find out what candidate would actually support, you know, what their goals are and not, not, you know, act based on fear. Um, and, uh, and I think it's just, it's really, 
honestly, it just makes me really sad because, um, you know, we're scared of the wrong things. A lot of people don't really have a good idea of what they should be afraid of. Yeah. Um, and that's a very, you know, that's, I'm sure whenever I say that people get mad at me because of course we, you know, what's important to us is important to us. But, you know, we're, when you look at the, the stats and what each individual is most likely to, to kind of be threatened by, we just don't have a good idea of it. And I would love to see people kind of understanding fear their own and how it's used uh, in society better so that they can make better choices for themselves. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, tagging, having somebody, you know, a more conservative uh, part of the country suddenly more like using uh, a fear of gay marriage that sort of gets lumped in with everything else. And that's just one more fear they tack on to something that might actually be legitimate, but suddenly the scales tip to the, uh, you know, vote for crazy town place because, mm -hmm. you know, they were, they, they tapped into, uh, that bigotry part of fear, that fear right. of the different instead of like, Hey, this guy's got a amount. Should he really have the nuclear codes? You know, that's yeah. a legit fear. Well, it's, it's also, it sort of confuses um, inconvenience with fear. Like mm. it goes from inconvenience to fear to anger. I feel like, say you're trying to get somebody to recycle. Well, that's inconvenient. <laughs> and, uh, but like, then you make it so that you have to be afraid of the inconvenience because it's just going to make your life so much harder. That's part of and a it, one government, one world government mindset telling me what to do. <laughs> and then, and then you get angry because of yeah, that. And yeah. I think uh, certain political parties are very good at uh, connecting yeah. those dots yeah yeah i mean fear is the best motivator for action and it can be manipulated so so easily and and it's just you know that's how we were you know that's how we've survived is to pay attention to things that make us afraid and today i think that since we do live in a very different world where we're not being attacked by tigers and bears and um you know we're not as uh, threatened by the natural environment I mean, to an extent, just in a, in a different way. But the things that are really threatening us, they don't really activate our threat response the same way. It's yeah. the things that require thought. And um, it's just, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm f afraid, I am constantly, fairly regularly, I should say, you know, it's not like I live in a state of constant, uh, you know, adrenaline pumping, but I am regularly frightened by what... I can see being the coming side effects, uh, uh, coming effects of climate change mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. it's, it's very much like that David Brin story. It's just, that is one of those things that is going to affect civilization on every possible level. And it's a really complicated argument to get across to people, but it's, Hey, rising sea levels, more erratic, uh, pat, uh, weather patterns means we're going to have to spend more money on rebuilding infrastructure and rehousing people. And that's going to lead to problems with our food sources. We're going to have to reinvest and figure out a way we're going to have to make concessions about genetic modifications. And it's this whole thing just starts to unravel just from this one, you know, in terms of politics, it's one issue, but in terms of our planet, it's the one thing we should all be talking about all the time. And yet- yeah. We don't. Is there a reason? Do you think climate change is such a big fear that we as a civilization in America, at least, are avoiding it? Or what is that? I think it's it's that there's no really sexy kind of scary images to show when we're talking about climate change. I mean, there are I've seen the, the video of some of the um, the ice, um, the icebergs kind of breaking into um, into the Arctic and that. That, there's a new one about to break uh, that, that there was just a story about yesterday. Like one of Delaware the, or something. Yeah, yeah, one of the top 10 ever recorded in size is breaking off imminently. And it should inspire a great deal of fear, but 
it's not as immediate. It's not as close to us. We mm-hmm. don't connect to it at a, you know, at a, a really kind of personal level. It's so far away. But you show us a picture of, you know, somebody being shot or, yeah. you know, um, and it's just it's it's tapping into that that visceral reaction so much more. But I agree. I think that it should inspire the same kind of fear because it truly is going to to threaten humanity. But it's also a matter of thinking about future generations and, you know, people, if they're, if they're seeing the threats to themselves as being more immediate, more in the moment, then they're not really thinking about what's going to happen 20 years from now right. mm-hmm. or what future generations should be preparing for. We should tell uh, people that the icebergs that are breaking off are going to take their guns away. I think. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I really quickly, and I don't know if you can sum it up quickly. Um, but please tell me what it was like to go to the suicide forest. <laughs> it, it was it was incredible. It was um, you know I went there to to really think about death, to think about mortality, and to think about you know my own relationship to death and and what it meant and um, and it was incredibly powerful because you know you when you, if you think about death um, in what I would call I guess a very kind of compassionate way, it does make you feel closer and more appreciative of everybody in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so scary, you know, it's, it's scary to think about what's going to happen when your parents die or when, um, when you die, but in confronting it, there is this amazing sense of, of closeness. And I never, I've felt so much closer to, to my parents, to my family after really acknowledging that our time here is short. And mm-hmm. what, what is it about the suicide force that uh, like, I, I, I don't know much about it. Like what, what's its deal? Well, it's so it's it's it is a truly beautiful place and it, it uh, it's the second um, uh, most popular suicide destination in the world after the Golden Gate Bridge uh, and it was made popular based on a couple of writings that were done and also it's considered a very spiritual place um, it's also you know some people think it's haunted um, but it's a place that is is truly beautiful it's it's volcanic rock um, you know at the base of Mount Fuji and then all of this gorgeous green um, and ferns and just is very vibrant and so it's just I think the contrast between a place that feels so alive is a place that mm. has a history of so much death um, it it really does kind of I think, well, for me, it, it did provide a space to to think about these things at a deeper level than I think I could do just, you know, at home or mm-hmm. um, through reading a book. It, it was, it did feel powerful to be in a space where death is just so pervasive mm-hmm. to kind of confront the, that reality that, that we're going to die. So. Well, that's actually a really beautiful way to tell people they should think about death more. I really it's, appreciate it's true. that. Yeah. It's true. That's what that's why you we're know. doing this because uh, it's it's better to confront things than to just be afraid of them. Yeah, we had a, a funeral director and and mm-hmm. his wife uh, they had much the same uh, much the same point which is just, you know, it's it happens guys. So if you, the the less you think about it, the more unprepared you're going to be. Mm. Uh legally yeah. uh, as well as emotionally. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, I think um for some people I think they might be afraid that if they really do confront death that they'll they'll feel like They've lost some sort of, um, I don't know, the the spark of life. But mm. it really, when you really appreciate it, it makes me at least just think about how every day is really just an opportunity to to do something awesome, and that it's you know it's short. Like if anything, it brings more meaning to life. Um, so, yeah. 
that that makes that and you know what like intellectually that might not make sense but if you if you sort of delve a little bit emotionally that makes total yeah. sense yeah. Um, um, so we got to wrap up right now but thank uh, you so much Mark yeah. this has been yeah, really lovely you. we'd love to have you back on again maybe uh, like in the, in the next few months we can because uh, I we didn't even get a chance to ask you about that uh, the uh, haunted house you helped put together last oh, yeah, couple years yeah. ago that's oh it's so interesting um, yeah. but would you uh, would you we have a little uh, secular prayer we say at the end uh, if oh you, yeah we, uh, we round robin it so if you want to join us on that uh that would be delightful yep i am all set okay our fellow humans who are here and now hallowed be thy consciousness thy kingdom floats in a universe so vast it's like totally bananas man therefore be kind to each other and don't eat so much bread ask forgiveness of your trespasses and forgive those who trespass against you because all of us can be really annoying For thou art the mind inside thine stupid human suit. The only one of its kind. We are thus also. And that must simply be enough. Amen. Amen. Yay. Thank you so much, Thank you so much, Margie. Margie. You were a blast. This has been Stupid Human Suits. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Megan, our producer. Thank you. And uh, don't forget to pick up Margie's books. And uh, Margie, do you have a Twitter account or anything you want to plug? Sure, yeah. I am Margie Kerr um, on Twitter and Instagram, and it's margiekerr.com. Um, you can find everything you need right there. Awesome. That's M A R G E E, and Kerr is K E R R. All right, that's it. This is Stupid Human Suits. Thank you so much, Margie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. 